What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Logos Podcast. This is Max. This is Joey. And on today's episode, we've got a dense topic, philosophical, classic Logos, taking it old school. We're going to be talking about the huge philosophical figure of contemporary times, Mm -hmm. Michel Foucault. That simple, guys. If you've never heard heard of Michel Foucault, that's okay. Not a lot of people have, but a lot of people are, I think guided at least implicitly by his ideas and in fact bishop baron did a recent episode on this uh this thinker this french thinker but i will say i'm not calling out bishop baron here but what i am saying is that logos had considered talking about him as well before this 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 came out and so we're on the same wavelength we're on the same wavelength but i think after listening to bishop baron i was like okay yeah we got to do something Uh, it was him and and i remember being struck by him when i studied him formally um a couple years ago in my in uh in in my philosophy class but yeah so i mean what's interesting about bishop baron's video he did this series called understanding the present moment yeah right right? and he talked about four big philosophers the final one of which was michel foucault yeah so it was john paul sartre which we've covered to some extent karl marx which we've also talked about yeah, that's right dang yeah and so nietzsche. Uh, Mich- nietzsche which we haven't spoken much about maybe in no. a future episode but then michelle foucault so yeah anyways yeah. and what bishop baron was saying and what we're going to hopefully demonstrate is that this guy this philosopher who worked during the 20th century um his ideas are hugely influential on our culture today yeah and i think can explain a lot of the chaos that we're finding ourselves in so understanding what he wrote and why is going to be really helpful for helping us understand the world around us right now, I think. So that's kind of why we wanted to do this episode. So we're going to try to present to you this guy's thought, kind of talk about who he was, some of the major ideas that he had. Even though we're not Foucault experts, we should say that. That's a good preface. He's he's like super sophisticated and dense in his writings, Right. right? So... And he is, he is like, I mean, and he's also relatively, when it comes to the philosoph- his philosophical movement, it's relatively new. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, 30, 40, even 50 years uh, worth of kind of, uh, you know, writings is, is relatively new. And, and I think that's also part of it. It's like the scholars are limited because it's new. But we're by no means uh, scholars. We're not experts. But we have, do have basic knowledge of, of the ideas he presents here. Yeah. So our goal here is to just kind of extract some of the big ideas that he yeah. took away and help you think through them and, um, be able to combat some of them, I think, because yeah. we're going to see that he's the source of a lot of problems um, that we find ourselves in the midst of. Before we get into the conversation, what is though, a conversation, though? I just told you what the conversation is going to be. No, about. no, you. Oh, the, before we get into uh, the conversation, oh, that's right. Tell me, dog, what's going on? Lay it on me. We got this thing called a Patreon page. A Patreon page. You feel if me? You go to Patreon.com/slash/LogosPodcast. You can become. A donor for Logos. You can support our project. You can can support it. You can give us money. You can give us money. To help us keep doing. Keep doing. What we're doing. What we're doing. (laughs) And uh, we'd really appreciate that. We're praying for all of you. Obviously, regardless of whether you give to us or not. But um, we would really appreciate your help. Keep us continue, like help us continue to approve our our setup here, our studio, the quality of our video and audio production. That's going to be super helpful. So it is. We also have Instagram. We also have um, TikTok. Mm-hmm. We also have a website. Wow, Joey, well done. And the links to those things, are t- you typically attach those to these. We got, we're on YouTube, so check yeah. us out on YouTube. Subscribe, follow, share, rate, and comment on our stuff. Um, so Move it on up, dude. That's, that's kind of, we got to say that because that's what they pay us to say. 
this, yeah, we get a lot of money because we're on this thing. You know, as, as sponsored you by Jesus Christ, always present. Guys, if you're ever in need of some help, please consider reaching out to Jesus Christ. Again, that's Jesus Christ. You can reach out to him at jesuschrist.com, also jesuschrist.net, also jesuschrist.org. And he's always present, guys. And that is the sponsor of this video. Thank you for tuning into this, uh, to this Logos podcast, and we'll see you later. God bless. God bless. <laughs> God bless. Okay, so Michel Foucault, I mean, this guy, big time. And, and, he was a character. He was a character. And I think you can, and in fact, he's so contemporary that you can find some of his even higher quality interviews on YouTube right now. Um, if you go, if you go and search up Michel Foucault, I will preface by saying, and Joey will probably agree, he is a very interesting figure, um, both positively and negatively. He's a very articulate, intelligent man, but he's also a very dark and kind of nihilistic man. You can tell his exposure and the way he talks. He has a very kind of, dark demeanor to, to his kind of position. And, um, yeah, I was talking to, we, we brought on Dr. Eric Graff uh, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Not, not too long ago. And I was mentioning, he's like, Hey, what are you going to record on this week? And we're like, actually, we're going to talk about Michelle Foucault. And he was like, I'm sorry if you're having to read his stuff. And, and I was like, Oh, come on. What do you mean? And he's like, yeah, he's like, well, you know, and he was kind of telling me, you know, he had studied at the university of Toronto and, um, a little bit of biographical, um, kind of background to, to Michel Foucault. He's a French philosopher. Yeah, so he's and from France. He's, he's from France, and um, he had influence in the University of Toronto because of its French descendants. Oh, and So a great. lot of the literature had reached uh, the University of Toronto where he was studying. And Dr. Eric Graff was that, there. Exactly, and he said he'd remember distinctly when he was studying uh, literature, pursuing his, his master's, I think it was, in literature, or maybe doctorate. Of course. He, yeah, why not? I mean, he has yeah. them all, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Um, and so he said he'd been exposed to some of the, the, the rhetoric and the literature that um, kind of Foucaultian people were influencing it's, in this. It's, it's dark. It's kind of twisted yeah. stuff. And so it's kind of reached uh, the, the academic level by a wave. And as Bishop Barron uh, was kind of speaking about, and Jordan Peterson has mentioned, and what we would like to say is that, in fact, these ideas are prevalent, not explicitly perhaps, and you probably aren't talking about, yeah, you don't probably have a Michel Foucault t-shirt. Yeah, you've probably never but, even heard his name before. Right. Um, but you might be encountering or thinking thoughts that he thought first. Yeah. Um, which is wild. Talking about his biography. Yeah. He was born in 1926. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, what is, I think it's Potier, France, I think is where he was born. I think it's how you, that's how you say that. You're the guy who knows French. I'm, I'm the French man. You know, je parle français. <laughs> All right. And that's about the extent of that. All right. And he passed away in 1984. Oh, really? Yeah. So, Relatively young. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, well, like, six. 62. Okay, 62. Yeah, 62. Thanks for doing right, that math done. for me. Yeah, we're there. Actually, that's not true. That was bad math. It was um, 50. If we do the math here. Oh, this is so embarrassing. I'm not even 58. Trying. I'm just waiting on you. 58, dude. For the record, right. I didn't even just attempt that mental math. I could have right. done it had I attempted Look, it, but I just didn't want to. Look, we're philosophers, okay? Yeah, take it easy, d okay? Math, take math it is in a logic is Who our thing. You? Not, yeah, okay. Not geometry. But he was like a celebrity, right? Like, oh, big time. He got really famous yeah, yeah, yeah. even in his lifetime. Yeah, and so yeah, he was he was a big time for for yeah, for his time and and still today. I mean, he's, he's taken very seriously in the kind of intellectual endeavors. He um, comes out of the school of thought of like Nietzsche, um, right? And Fred, Friedrich Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Um, a German. So he's right? very influenced by him, right? And by Karl Marx, right? That's right. Uh, he has he has uh, influences by Karl Marx, and again at the time, the, those are the philosophers: Heidegger, uh, a little bit of Husserl, uh, you know, these these kind of uh, Wittgenstein and Jean Paul Sartre, and all these guys are kind of you know part of the 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 um, a philosophical movement 
I mean, there was two. There was one in Europe, what's known as a continental philosophy, and then there's the analytical, which reached um, large parts of like Sweden and Norway and Netherlands, but also reached America. And that's really where kind of the philosophical school of thought in America, the Americas, kind of was influenced by was this analytical philosophy, which takes language serious and studies the kind of construction of, of words Focus and definitions. words and language, right. especially, yeah. And so, and so kind of Michel Foucault comes out of this this kind of school of thought, this spirit. So we're going to see that in some right. of his writings, this focus on language, on yeah. discourse we'll talk about. So, yeah. uh, okay, what else is important about his life, though, before we start talking about his works? I think it, I think it's also, we, we talked about uh, earlier, I mean, he's a brilliant man. Smart uh, guy. Very, very smart. Articulate, right? Very articulate, um, uh, kind of charismatic. charismatic. Yeah, that's right. And so I think that was another thing. It's like part of it was he was a smart man, but another part of it was he was very good at speech. He was mm-hmm. very rhetorically attractive. Which you don't get all the time with philosophers. You don't. Right? Like a lot of times you'll get a philosopher who's like can think really clearly, but if you put him on the spot, he's not going to explain it really. Like he'll, he can write a really good yeah. book, but he can't give a public lecture. Right. And this a guy, book. This guy uh, can do both. Exactly. And, and a book forces you to kind of sit down. Yeah, and kind of think about it, and 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 in you a have way time, that, and right. it's it's slow, and um, it's methodical, right? So Michel Foucault, brilliant man, intelligent, articulate, but he was also psychologically distressed. He was tormented as a kid, didn't have a very good relationship with his father, and we say all this in light of not trying to kind of deconstruct who he was or trying to ruin his reputation necessarily, but these are important things to consider when talking about somebody very, like Michel Foucault. And I think you will see through his writings some of the um, effects of this. So he was tormented as a kid, kind of bullied. Um, again, a brilliant kid, but not taken serious, I think, for a large part of his life. Had a bad relationship with his father. Um, it affected uh, uh, his, his, yeah, he, he was known to have had a, a poor relationship with his dad, um, which could be hard on anybody, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that also must be taken into account. Studied philosophy and psychology at several French universities. Uh, where he was asked to attend prestigious college, the, the Collège de France, I think that's how you say it. Uh, so he was a professor of the history of systems of thought. And that's where he actually died in that uh, Collège of France. Um, he was a political activist. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He protested on behalf of the margin, or marginalized groups, which him will himself. Make, which will make sense as yeah, we get into some right. of his ideas. Um, a year before his passing, this was interesting, I found out, he actually had accepted a job at the University of Berkeley. Berkeley University in, the, in, California, here, in California, in California, and what he was going to do was on a yearly basis give a lecture there, um, which obviously he didn't get to do yeah. very often because he passed away shortly before accepting such a role. Um, nevertheless, he also was an active homosexual, active homosexual, and I've heard that he might have even had a preference for younger, yeah, like like boys. Yeah. Um, so that's something to be taken into consideration when thinking about. Him and then also wasn't he? I mean, he was suicidal even throughout his life. Yeah, he was institutionalized um, in psychiatric wards on, on I think, a couple of occasions at least, maybe a few more than a couple. But uh, he was institutionalized. Yes, suicidal, heavy drug user, drug user, huge drug user. Um, And I think it's also important to consider here that I mean, he explicitly set out on living uh, the full. Uh, homosexual lifestyle, um, so much so that he actually moved into communities that were known for having AIDS amongst them and partaking in the activities that and these that's, communities involved. That's how he died, right? He that's ultimately how he died. Contracted AIDS. Um, and it's, it's a sad, it's a sad death, you know? Yeah. Um, that's tragic. I mean, the whole, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And so in light of talking about Michel Foucault and considering his ideas, I think it's important that we take this history that kind of, uh, you know, uh, overshadows his existence mm-hmm. that to be mm-hmm. taken serious 
always, always, always categorizing and qualifying the history of a person within who they are now. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, yeah, these these are things to consider. Okay. Um, So here's just a list of a a few of, so he wrote a lot because he's really smart. But here's just a few of the titles of some of his works. He wrote a title called The History of Madness, Yeah, right? Where he's breaking down like how have people thought about crazy people throughout history, right? Yeah. Um, he wrote a big book, fancy book called The Order of Things. Which I'm, um, it's said to be one of the most famous or popular books. That's supposedly one of his most influential, right. very dense, very technical, yeah. philosophical, psychological. Yeah. So he wrote one called The Archaeology of Knowledge, which we're going to talk about. Yep. The Discourse of Language, which we're also going to talk about. The History of Sexuality. Mm-hmm. So um, these are just a few of the titles. He wrote one on the history of prisons too, I believe. Yeah, So, and that was another thing. He was a reformer in, in yeah. those ways. Like I, I think like um, uh, mental institutions he wanted to reform, mm-hmm. prisons he wanted to reform. Um, and again, we'll talk about the goods and bads of uh, his attempts at reforming, what that looked like Yeah. Right. Um, when talking about his works. But I think the, par- the particular works you said are, are... So let's start, yeah, the archaeology yeah. of knowledge. This is one of the works. We want to just extract for you guys a couple of big ideas from this work. Again, it's very dense and very sophisticated and complicated. He's very hard to read. He is. Um, but yeah. we're going to, and I haven't read a whole lot of his stuff. Yeah. Um, you probably have read more than yeah, I so I Yeah. So I was exposed to him. I think we de- we dedicated about, yeah, I mean, we dedicated several classes to his school. I, I was exposed to a lot of his primary literature in English, to be fair, which I hear is not the best translation, Oh yeah, that but, makes still, sense. but still, um, I think that what we have. So yes, I was exposed to his primary literature uh, a while ago. And as we were refreshing to discuss this topic, a lot of things started coming back mm-hmm. to light. And so much so, in fact, I went to prayer. I was like, Lord, how do we talk about how do we talk about this um, and make it kind of uh, yeah stick, but also give it its its due respect and that's also its um, yeah to, to to be honest about this it's never so the archaeology the archaeology of knowledge right off the bat what do we read archaeology what is well, that archaeology that's to like literally that's to dig beneath the surface yeah. right to excavate information like that's what archaeologists do yeah. Michel Foucault is going to want to do that with our ideas, right? With our forms of knowledge and ideas about the world. Um, So he's going to take a a popular idea that's out there in the world. And what he's going to want to do, he's he's like, okay, yeah, everyone seems to accept this idea right now at face value is maybe even common sense. Yeah. It's the moral norm. It's it's the moral norm, uh, political norm, whatever it might be. What he wants to do is dig down underneath it. Mm. And he wants to, in that process, reveal the different power structures that were at play in bringing about that ultimate idea that's now become commonplace among society. Right. And to him, like, that's really the archaeology, the archaeological aspect comes in the diggingness of these. Yeah, the digging down behind. And like at certain times in history, certain ideas were. And as time kind of has evolved, certain layers in, in archaeology, right? Certain layers of history can have kind of mounted on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And um, and to him, these ideas, what what we'll refer to oftentimes as discourse or kind of this, this epistemological or discursive formation of words and mm-hmm. ideas coming together to form what we would say truth, he would say more mm-hmm. like power. Um, it, these ideas inf- inform and in fact demand that man has a certain psychological process, that he thinks about things in a certain way, mm-hmm. and that he acts a certain way. Right. So we can talk about more examples of, of those, but like, you know, um, always to keep in mind here that the archaeology of knowledge is studying what is the force behind the ideas being promoted at the yeah. time, yeah. you know, and who's actually guiding those things. And for, for Michel Foucault, 
this is going to be one of the most problematic aspects of his thought, but also one of the most constant is that for him, what is most fundamental about the world is power, right? right? And structures and struggles between different groups vying for power. Hmm. So he's going to reject like objective reality, objective truth. And at, at the base level, what he's going to detect beh behind all the ideas that he's digging behind with this archaeological process is power structures. Yeah. So, okay, some examples of this. Can we think of any examples? Um, one of the examples that I, I wanted to use was like, uh, I don't know, take hospitals, for example. Yeah. Right? Okay. Talk so, to us about that. so hospitals are institutions, mm -hmm. right? That carry certain textbooks that doctors and nurses mm -hmm. and anybody else really working for a hospital has to understand, know, you know, very well um, to be able to carry out the hospital mission well. There's certain textbooks, there's certain journals, there's certain mm -hmm. academic endeavors, lectures, meetings, this and that, whatever. You know, what you can, this can go, list can go on and on. And, uh, but also the hospital, institution itself is influenced by a, a higher, like, I don't know, sophisticated scientific program or scientific research or scientific whatever. And in fact, a lot of hospitals are attached to a certain research center, right? And so, but for him, like, in order to understand the things they're promoting, you have to dig deeper into not just the ideas themselves, but the forces implementing these ideas, these textbooks, these journals, these practices within the larger frame of what we would call the medical field. So the, so the, a good example, I think, is he does, and he has this whole work on the history of madness. Oh, yeah, that's a good right? point. But, yeah. he'll, so, but this is a good example for kind of understanding his, his process, his methodology is he'll say, okay, we have certain people in the world right now who we consider to be mad, right? That's, I mean, mentally yeah. ill, insane, right. crazy. Like, so what he's going to do is he's gonna like, okay, well, what if, what happens if we take a look back at history? Like, what did people consider madness to be? I don't know, a thousand years ago, 2000 yeah. years ago in some of these ancient cultures. And what he'll, def what he'll find is like, actually madness had a very different definition in some ancient cultures than it does now. Right. And so he'll, he'll begin to ask the question, well, okay, so why is it that we categorize certain people today as crazy yeah. when they mm -hmm. exhibit, you know, these five or six traits, mm -hmm. whereas those five or six traits that manifested themselves in history didn't necessarily categorize someone as mad. Well, yeah. he said it must be because, I mean, his ultimate conclusion on a lot of these investigations is that it must be because there was some sort of power struggle in the past and a certain group won. Yeah. And another group lost. And now that group has become oppressed. Yeah. And so they've been relegated to the margins, right? Mm -hmm. They've been they've been ostracized. And now their status, and even in our forms of thinking and our modes of thinking, their status as crazy is, is the are the winners. Are well, yeah, with the, the yeah. people who we consider mad or crazy, these would be the losers, oh, right? Yeah. Right, right, right? These would be the people who who lost some power struggle back mm -hmm. in history and are now even in our very even when I think that someone's crazy, that's kind of me oppressing that person. Yeah, looking lesser, and and they have to prove their worth now. Yeah. Right, and so like the archaeology, again, going back to that image, right? So you're building, you're stacking on top of each other different layers of ideas mm -hmm. for him would be like the archaeology of knowledge here. And so like what happens is, let's say the, the madman, right, or the mentally ill, um, there's a group of, of, you know, medical professionals that say, no, this is an illness. Mm -hmm. Boom, truth stacked there. What happens is this person is now oppressed, mm -hmm. right? The bottom person is now oppressed and the doctors are on top. And then you get that over a level of time, a level of history, you know, and what you have now is, wait a second, 
why are these winners the controllers of reality? Right. Why are these guys that have been telling us, for example, the mental ill, the homosexual, the, yeah, whoever, why are they telling us that we can't live this way? Isn't yeah. this just a social construction anyways? It's a, so, it's a construction, right? It's, right. A, it's the result of a power struggle. Right. It doesn't reflect our categorization of certain people as mentally ill does yeah. not reflect anything real about reality. Yeah. It's merely an arbitrary result of a power struggle that took place at some point in the past or past or multiple power struggles, right? right. That have been building up over time, ultimately resulting in the world that we see right now. And I think, and so I think, this is the idea, right. right? So when we talk about the archeology span of knowledge or where Foucault seems to be talking about and, uh, archeology span of knowledge is that, um, Ultimately, the truths at play, what we would say, the universal truths at play, truths, yeah. right, at play, um, are dominant because by at the cost of others, yeah, right. And so now it's the duty of the oppressed to kind of win this ideological mm -hmm. war that's been going on, and to kind of express themselves and surmise and become now the revolutionaries, the reformers of this, of this level of fact. And I don't know if he uses the reform language, yeah, neither. but, but, but it certainly at least implies that the power struggle is real and one must be conscious of it in his discourse and his dialogue yeah. with others and encounters with other. Um, right? So can we think about this pattern of thought showing itself in today's popular culture anywhere? Any examples you can think of off the top? I have one if you can. Yeah, go ahead. Well, just the idea of like, okay, so me here, saying something today like, I don't know, the nuclear family is a good institution, yeah. right? That's like, that's the natural institute. Like that's the natural way things should be is like right. families together, living together. Michel Foucault would take that claim of mine, that generally accepted opinion, and he would want to dig down beneath it. And he would say, that's not actually true. Like that doesn't actually correspond to reality. No. The reason that people think that today or have thought that at, you know, at certain times in history is because that thought was used by religious institutions, by religious yeah. institutions or certain groups in order to oppress others. Right. right. And so of course me, and you'll hear this rhetoric all the time. Of course you, a white Christian heterosexual mm -hmm. man would say that because it benefits you in some, because it's all about power, yeah. right? You Every, don't, yeah, you don't, you don't have to have kids, but everybody else has to have kids because you're the one that's in control. You're the smartest, you're the best, you're the most athletic Yeah, and you have to, and, and, and by, by implementing these ideas, by telling them to live this way, you end up on top. So everything is about right. power. Even if I'm, even if I don't even realize it, that's the right. point. So even if I don't even, even explicitly know that by saying, oh, the nuclear family is a good thing, mm -hmm. I'm oppressing somebody, I actually am, according yeah. to Michel. Well, that, he, didn't, he didn't take up that particular issue. Yeah. But that's kind of his thought transferred and influencing the conversation today in the, yeah. in the, in the political world. So um, it's very dangerous. It is. It's, and I think ultimately, you, you, you said this word, and I don't know where else it's been said, and I'm sure it has probably been said i'm not discrediting you but I'm sure i didn't come up with but that. um i think what it ultimately uh this boils down to and then i think it'd be good to talk about the discourse of language because it kind of just builds this up even mm -hmm. more what it ultimately seems to do is um build up what do you use a hermeneutic of suspicion of suspicion right so it's not until you begin to investigate the different layers of ideas within kind of historical contexts and this is very important um it's not until you begin to investigate these uh these ideas that you begin to actually get to the truth of the matter to the, mm -hmm. to the real core of what's going on here, which is him, ultimately always power power. Um, but this is important. And I do want to make this uh, clarification before we move forward. History for him 
right? These layers, these eras of existence wouldn't have been um, unitary. They wouldn't have been um, kind of a, a story that are connected. Continuous. Right. Yeah. They're not continuous. They're not connected. They're, they're, they're fragmented. Right. And in fact, we would say, I don't know, in the 21st century, we believe this because in the 16th century, this, and because of the 12th century, this, and the 8th century and 4th century, these universal norms have been held. And today we live by them because whatever. Mm. He wouldn't have said that. He would have said that ideas, this archive, right? This archive of knowledge, this, this, this kind of coming together of combined information and ideas have been expressed differently at different periods of history. Mm -hmm. And we need to be conscious that not Everything that we hold now as, you know, universal is applicable because that hasn't always been the case. Ideas, morality, things have evolved throughout time. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I think it's important to contextualize here about what we're talking about. Like it ultimately what it does is it forces you to look at everything with distrust, to look at ideas and truth claims as something seeking for power and influence. It's real. I'm thinking about it right now from his, it's an inability to receive. Yeah. Mm. It's I have to I have to dig I have to take control I have to dig down and be sus suspicious of everything I'm being presented with. Wow. Okay, before we go on to talk about his second one of the, his second big works on the discourse of language, I think it'd be helpful. Um, Jordan Peterson made a video talking about Foucault, right? And he said this is a great way to kind of interpret Michel Foucault. Is he's oh, I just want to say I heard a lot of people or I read a lot of the comments on this video that were like he doesn't know anything about it. Why is he talking about it? He has no idea. Okay, so here's the thing: like, first of all, it's not nice to discredit somebody just because um, you you don't like them or whatever. Yeah, but like. Jordan Peterson is a very well-read man. He's and, read Michel Foucault. Okay, and he's, he's the most read author, for example, at the University of Toronto. Okay, so like, I don't know, it's a lot, I saw a lot of critiques and I was like, wait, what? Like, where is this coming yeah. from? Is it coming from a good place? Is he right about everything? No, but he also says he's not an expert in it. Right. But he has expressed, anyways, I just want to kind of preface it before you say yeah, that. Yeah, so this is, this is a way that he kind of interpreted Michel Foucault. He said he's a Marxist. Yeah. Right? But he transfers the Marxist idea. So Karl Marx viewed everything, all of reality, all of history through the lens of the struggle between the rich and the poor, right? Right. Everything for Karl Marx was about this class struggle. Mm -hmm. for, for Foucault, everything is about a struggle for power, but it's not necessarily between economic classes. It's just between oppressor and oppressed. Mm -hmm. So everything for him, he's going to view this through the lens of at base, once you dig behind everything, you're going to find this primordial power struggle between oppressed and oppressors. Yeah. And I think that's a helpful way of, of thinking about him as we, as we move forward. Cool. So the discourse of language, this is, um, another major work of his, and we're going to talk about a few of the ideas yeah. that show up in it. First, I want to start by uh, quoting him, actually, okay. just really quickly. There's a quote here that I think will kind of shed light on, on, this on his main defining idea. defining discourse, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, so. what is discourse? Discourse of language, what is discourse, right? Discourse means you have a range of statements that provide a language with the way of talking about something, okay? It provides a language with a way of representing knowledge about a particular subject matter at a given historical juncture. Again, thinking about this theme. Certain ideas are expressed within certain historical contexts here, okay? At those said junctures, I'll take an example here. You, um, I think the example would be like, okay, in, in 2022, somebody ex having an exchange with the president, okay, is going to talk about certain things, certain laws, certain agendas, certain ideas, certain projects. We intuitively know, let's say if I go to this dinner and sit in here with the president, right, um, I intuitively know where he stands on things. Republic, he's, he represents a certain party, you know, you may or may not like him or her. 
nevertheless, our exchange, right? Our, the language that we're used amongst each other mm-hmm. is creating what he calls a discourse, right? It's more of an event taking place amongst him and I that enables certain ideas to predicate and represent the dominant ideas of the time. It's a bit abstract. Yeah. But talk us through it. If I, me and me, let's say, for example, me and, and President whoever, right, are sitting here talking about something. I have to, in a certain way, agree with the things that are he, he is saying because of who he is. Yeah, so right. you're going you're gonna to use certain words, Mr. President. Yeah, right? You're going to address him in a certain way. Shake his hand a certain way. Right. You know, maybe even tilt, tilt my head or get up or do these kinds of things. But the whole idea behind what we're doing is to create an event of discourse, right? To, 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 to make something happen that defines something, right? Okay. So the way that I act and I do things... To, to him is going to define how somebody else has to act and do things when he's with him. Right. So, right. So I think when you, when you come to the president, say you're having this encounter with president Biden or, or something, yeah. and um, you're using very particular words and gestures and phrases in your interaction with him, you're really what you are is you're conforming to kind of a system, right? Yeah. You're conforming to, a system that this discourse, this interaction actually continues to build up, right? Right. This is how you, this is how we interact with the president, right? And now since you're kind of being integrated into that system of this governing system of norms and even words that yeah. are that proper and situated to this context, now you're reinforcing that system so that other people are going to have to be integrated into it as well. Right. The way we exchange, the way we use language, and language, I don't think it's just limited to words. I think it's limited by expert. It's, it's also informed by expression. Oh, yeah. So, right. Body language. Right. Stuff and, like that. and so the way that this discourse, this event takes place, and what happens really ultimately is that we categorize and give perception to reality. And we, constru- we construct exactly. reality, right? So, like through through our very words, through the words that we use um, and through the discourses that we're a part of, these events that we're a part of, we actually give shape to reality. And we expect that everybody else conform themselves to this comportment, to the way that we act, to the way that we think, the way that we say, right? Um, And so the discourse of language, ultimately, the discourse, simply put, I think too simply even, is describes an event that enables these prominent ideas to arise and to build certain standards by which everybody else is now called to conform to. Right. So, so what is the, knowing Michel Foucault's train of thought, what's the consequence of this? This means that the words and phrases and discourses that we're accustomed to being a part of today, they were constructed by oppressors, Right. right? Those who are in those who won some primordial power struggle, right. it's their words, it's their language, it's their phrases and discourses that have become the prominent ones into which we have to kind of be integrated and submit ourselves to today. And therefore, yeah. by mm. being asked to use certain language, I myself am being oppressed. Right. Right. I have to, I have to submit myself to this guy's agenda, even if I don't like it, or even if I do, whatever. Like, I have to do it. And so, like, and that's based off, for example, that's based off of a war that was won 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, to him, going to back to archaeology, like, digging deeper, how did this guy come in power, and why do I have to do what he tells yeah. me to do? And so society tells me to do this. For him, it would have been, well, it's based off of this historical event at the right. time, but that no longer applies because mm-hmm. today we live in a different realm where that's expressed differently, right? So I know Michel Foucault was particularly interested in even 
digging down behind the meanings of words that are used in like medicine and psychology. Right. right? Okay. So he was really, I mean, he was questioning like objective scientific truth and like trying to show this is actually not objective yeah. science. This is the result of some power struggle. And now that's why we have these categories, but you can extrapolate, you can see this in today, in today's world. Right. Yeah. So, um, our, in our woke culture, if I say something today, like, okay, there's these two categories that correspond to reality and that's male and female. Yeah. Right. Someone who's thinking like Michel Foucault would think would say, okay, actually those two categories don't reflect the, like the fact that those are common today and we use those words like male and female. We use that, those words in our discourse. That's not because they correspond to anything out there in the world. Right. That's just the result of a power struggle that's taken place. And now the oppressors have, one, the power right. struggle and establish their own forms of discourse, establish their own language. So language itself is a reflection of a power struggle and it continues to keep certain people down, right? Yeah, because that's the thing. Like, so who ultimately suffers? Well, it would be people- discourse. The subjects, who, the poor subjects. Yeah, and and, you know? and, and this example right. would be people who feel like they don't fit into the category of male, male or female. Right. right. So this is what we're seeing today. Right. Like these categories aren't sufficient and- and all this stuff. So, yeah, right. hopefully it's it's clear how how influential Michel Foucault. And I think that that's important too. To and I guess I wanted to say like the person who suffers is 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 the one or the poor person is the one who ultimately suffers. The subject in this case is the one suffering. Why? Because it's the event of discourse that forces men and women to be defined in a certain way, mm-hmm. right? Rather than actually allowing them to in this in this in this context create their own reality, mm-hmm. right? Rather than submit themselves to whatever the the quote unquote norm would have been for for Michel Foucault, um, and I think that's important to keep in mind because he would have taken this serious, like a discourse to him would have been serious because it impresses upon us a certain again going back a, a certain psychological process, but also a certain physiological response to the whatever the prominent idea of the time mm-hmm. may have been or is. Um, but again, this is this is the this is the 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 kicker really. It's like it's a it's a it's a power struggle. And I know we're gonna keep talking about that, but I think I think we can't talk we can't say that enough. Yeah, and it's, it's, so, it's so present it's, in it's him really, and today, right. right? Um and so and and in and, and light of this, the the discourse, one of its one of its roles is um and it takes on a different role actually when it's organizational. Right, so it's one thing if me and President whoever are having a meal, but it's another thing if President whoever is having, you know, dinner with King or Queen or President whoever else. That sets a different precedent, right? Like if doctors are talking amongst nurses and doctors, that sets a different precedence at, at the level which they operate by. Yeah, organizations given, have their right, own proper language, right, and right. words and phrases that they have to kind yeah. of conform to. And I kind of want to end with this quote so we can go yeah, on this, to the next. This one, quote looks good. It looks like right? pretty clear. It's also by uh, Michel Foucault here, and it writes, um, in every society, the production of discourse is at once controlled, selected, organized, and redistributed according to a certain number of procedures whose role it is to avert its powers and its dangers to cope with chance events to evade its ponderous, awesome materiality. And I think ultimately for him, like, the fact, yeah, like, like we live in a world of like kind of chance and I can't remember exactly. I remember I was talking about this in class, but I'm going to try it here. Like we live in a world where like things happen by chance and the fact that we are trying to give and use certain expressions in our, in our, in our experience with reality is an attempt to define it. It's an arbitrary attempt to 
impose order upon what is at base really just chaos. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, um, and so I think that's really what's a discourse of language succinctly put. It's an event that demands that we submit ourselves to the prominence of ideas in that event, right? Or events collectively, if you will. There's both the events, particular events, but there's also the discourse that's kind of more connected in that sense and influences in a certain way that's more powerful than others. Um, cool. So that's a little bit of the discourse of language there. Yeah. Okay. So we covered archaeology of knowledge a little bit on its basic terms. We covered the discourse of language on its basic terms. And now we have the history of sexuality, which I'm excited to hear about. And um, after having read some, it's freaking, it's live, live action. Well, so th- this is a very prominent one today. And again, the, the theme is very similar. Um, he wrote two works, a history of modern sexuality and a history of ancient sexuality. But again, what is he doing? He's it's this archaeological methodology, right? He's trying to understand our current, our societal, our society's current norms for sexual behavior by digging beneath them, looking into history, looking at the way that, um, ancient cultures practiced sexuality and then ultimately showing that there's no real standard. There's no real norm. Everything Mm. again is just about power struggles, right? Right. So he, and the, what's particularly interesting to me is he, um, did a study of the ancient Greeks, right? So we, we venerate the ancient Greeks as very wise as having some um, of them, some of them. That's right. Some of them like Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, these guys, we, we look to a lot in the classical tradition and they, it's from Seneca, by the way, if one of our professors is listening, he's a big fan of Seneca. Sorry. And then out of that tradition comes something like the natural law, right? So, and the natural law has been adopted in the church's language, right? right? So, so, okay, Michel Foucault, he, he's examining those societies and saying, he's saying, look, like the ancient Greeks, they like homosexuality was very prevalent in their society. Right. And he documents this and he finds evidence for it. He's like, it was not uncommon for men to be sleeping with boys. Or right? with each other. Or with each other. Right. So, um, and so he's going to use that piece of evidence to say, here was this reputedly wise people who had this norm. Right. Now we have different norms. So there is no real standard. There is no real norm. There is no real nature to sex or to sexuality. Right. It doesn't have a real purpose. The norms surrounding sexual behavior are just determined by those who are in power. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's going to say he'll, he'll ultimately attribute our current ideas about sexual propriety to probably Christianity and its dominance for in, in history. On or science. He took science, the scientific realm science, serious, right? Yeah, you're right. So like biologists um, uh, would say, hey, this and this and this, therefore you're a male, this and this yeah. and this, therefore you're a, you know, a homo sapien sapien or, mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. Um, but to him, it would have been like, no, that's just, again, the dominant force being mm-hmm. exerted on this particular field. So that's kind of like the, that's kind of like the main theme of a history of sexuality. And that's kind of the attempt that he's trying to make in, in writing that book is basically to show that there is, there are no objective standards. Everything is arbitrarily constructed by force, different forces vying for power. Mm. And so sexuality also the history of sexuality here is the, the, um, the kind of expression of those ideas at particular times. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, He's been, some of his thoughts in this work have been particularly influential on a more contemporary author named Judith Butler. Mm. Judith Butler wrote a book called Gender Trouble. 
Yeah. And she's she's right there in that same kind of line of thinking is that we don't have real access to objective reality. We right. can't say anything true about the world, about sexuality, about men and women. Sure. And so our sexual norms are the way that we typically think about things are just the arbitrary constructs and result of different power struggles that have gone on in history, mm. really that have oppressed women and then or even eventually people who don't fit into the gender binary or something sure. like that. So, um, yeah, I mean. Foucault is incredibly influential in a lot of the transgender ideology that we see today in in our society. So that's why we got to be cognizant of his of his thinking. Yeah. Um, so that's those are the three kind of big works we wanted to talk about. Yeah. So now we've already kind of shown our cards on what we think of him, but let's kind of t- <laughs> let's kind of take a step back and maybe just evaluate what we've seen, what we've talked about, talk about. Did he get anything right? Like, is there anything commendable about his philosophy? And then what is it exactly that is super problematic with it? So let's right. start with the, this. And this is generally, this is fair to do with all philosophers who you encounter, yeah. right? You want to try to extract what you can from them because generally the reason that people get popular is because they're saying something that's resonant, that's resonant, that's true, right? Yeah. And maybe even true. So, mm-hmm. so what do we see in Foucault? What's good about him? Um, to keep it brief, I think one of the things that we see in him is kind of an intellectual honesty, right? He refuses to be just part of the norm of society. He is be, wants to be beyond the categorizations that mm-hmm. power for him would have been kind of submitting the world to. Um, he wants to deal with things. He wants to think about things. He wants to analyze and be critical of things. And there's something, there's something powerful about that. I think you read of any person, the saints, the patristics, you read, um, the mystics, you read the philosophers of the church. Um, uh, you know, I think that's one of the reasons, for example, like Bishop Barron is so popular is because he takes it serious, even if not everybody agrees with it or whatever. Like he's taking these, these matters serious the, and the controversial stuff, right? right. The stuff on the margins, right. like. Like it's kind of uncomfortable to talk about crazy people. It's yeah. kind of un- uncomfortable to talk and think about uh, prisoners and like some like sexuality like yeah. this. But so what's commendable about Foucault is that he wanted to go there. He wanted to like, no, let's not just try to like categorize these and then not think about them. What his intention was, right? We can't assume, but he did bring it forth. But I think we have good enough evidence to kind of at least know um, some of his intentions. Well, we'll talk about the negative aspects, but yeah. one of the positive aspects I think is his intellectual honesty. Another thing is that he was articulate, as we said earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, again, go watch some of his YouTube videos, read some of his stuff. You'll notice that very quickly. He also seems to be taking uh, language seriously um, yeah. and the way that he articulates and tells us about philosophy or and about I, truth. Sorry. And I want to make a comment on that. So this whole idea of the fact that he, you know, he said that human beings through our discourse, through our language, we construct the world. Yeah. Right. Um, I think in a certain sense, he's right. And let me me explain. Okay. Do explain. So in a Christian perspective, from a Christian understanding, like according to the, so God is ultimately the one who constructs the world through speech. Yes. Right. He speaks creation into existence Mm -hmm. through the word, through the logos. Yeah. And that's why everything is imbued with intelligibility and Mm -hmm. rationality. Man, when we speak, yeah, when we have dialogues, when we engage in discourse, I think we truly do participate in kind of God's act of creation in and through the word. And the reason I say that is think about this. If you have a child, you can speak to that child in such a way that you totally shape his world. Mm. So if you tell that child that he's that he's stupid, right? If you tell that child that he's not lovable, if you tell that if you if you treat him with negligence, 
that is going to really and truly impact that child's world. You can construct a certain world with your words yeah. and force that child to live within it. Now that's a, that's an abuse of this gift of language that we've been given. Yeah. Right. And it, what we need to do is receive creation, receive the world as it's been given to us and then participate in its manifestation and revealing its intelligibility through our own language. This is why speaking the right. truth is, is so important, right. right? This is why lying is so grave. It's because when we lie, we're manipulating reality. We're manipulating in a certain sense, reality yeah. for people. We're custodians of the truth. Yeah. We're responsible for it. And I think actually the, the line that uh, came to mind was to be co-workers of truth. Mm. That's Pope Benedict's, uh, I think papal motto. A motto, oh, really? yeah. So it's like be co co creators of truth, right? And so in the sense that Foucault's taking language serious in the way that it impacts people, and the way that they act, and the way that they think, um, I think we also can learn something from that to take the way that we speak, what we listen to, the way that we act, that they inform other people about reality, and yeah. they kind of shape the way that we think about things. Um, so, anyways, that's I think another positive. I don't know if you wanted to yeah. add well, something. And just to addition. add, of course, for Foucault, there is no God, right? right so right. every act of language, every act of constructing the world through our language it only has its source in the person, mm -hmm. right? And ultimately in the person's will to power, yeah. right? So that's why for him, this idea that human beings can construct construct the world through their language mm. is ultimately comes from this, 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 these power struggles. But yeah. really, I mean, it's amazing that the world has been spoken into existence and in the same in way the that- the beginning was the word. I right, mean, come exactly. On, and the, the, in the same way that a builder- who's building a church is participating in God's act of material creation. So too, we, when we engage in speech, when we mm. use our words, when we use language, when we paint something, exactly. when we make a piece of music, it's analogous to painting a right. picture or making a piece of music, right? Yeah. It's, it's, we're, we're contributing to the, the um, manifestation of God's rationality, of his glory, mm. of his intelligibility. Right. Which so. he's already imbued with it from the beginning. Yeah. Right? In the beginning, like that, that, that order and meaning was already given to and it. And that has to first be received. Right. Right. Okay. So he took, he took language serious. He took language serious. So that's a good aspect that's of his thought, thing. even though he was wrong. And ultimately. this is one thing you, you pointed out, um, this last one that I think was, was, is, is fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that he was, he was driven by a concern for the marginalized, yeah. for the mentally ill, for those in prison, for those, uh, for people with homosexual attractions. Right mm -hmm. now, um, you'll have certain commentators say that the reason he was driven by a concern for the marginalized is because he himself was a member of the marginalized. Right. And, and I wonder too, if sometimes it was also to kind of justify his lifestyle. Yeah. So you, I mean, right? these are questions that we can't know for sure. In my own thoughts, I think it's reasonable to conclude that yes, that, yeah. that was the case. But I mean, the church is about this too. I mean, the church wants yeah. to go out to the margins. The church doesn't want to just like forget about certain categories of people. The right. church is universal. That's Pope Francis is one of the exactly. big models, right? Go out to the margins and with, exactly. deal with the poor and the difficult situations, I think. Yeah. So that's, that's commendable in Foucault. But I think what's commendable kind of stops there. So what are the yeah. what are the biggest problems with Foucault? And we've already mentioned a lot of them, but just to kind of rehash them and and double down on the problematic aspects of his thought that we see. I think I think ultimately at at one of the the root issues here, um, and I think one of the reasons that I personally wanted to talk about this subject um, is that I see in the world you can uh, this this hermeneutic of suspicion in everybody. Everybody distrusts and hate everybody. Hate hermeneutic everybody. like a lens, right? Yeah. Like hermeneutic a lens. is a way to understand things. Yeah. Right? Hermeneutic, simply put, is a way to understand things. The way we understand everything is to be 
distrustful of it. For Foucault, yeah. To be, to be untrustworthy of people, of things, of language. And I think in Foucault's thoughts, this kind of spirit of untrust that you see in, you know, this nihilistic, what I call nihilistic kind of view of reality that, that modern man suffers with and mm -hmm. is possessed by. Yeah, constantly. Right? Um, I think that's, that's one of the large problematic, because we would take it, um, in, in the in the Thomistic tradition, in the Catholic tradition, in the Aristotelian, in the Western civilizations tradition, of um, of truth that uh, it's something to be trusted at least on the sensual level, like mm -hmm. the, the intuitive level, we can sense that we've talked about this a lot. We can sense things, we can see things. So uh, uh, on the very beginning, unlike Descartes, unlike the modern theology and contemporary uh, uh, philosophers, I'm sorry, and onward, we actually trust the appearances of things to a certain to a certain extent obviously mm -hmm. we trust people we assume the best of things mm -hmm. we, we we try to be people of hope people like, of faith with people right. of faith even on a natural level right. like you say something to me i i believe you yeah and so for for foucault however there was suspicion hermeneutic mm -hmm. uh, what what joey or whoever calls the hermeneutic of suspicion and i think that's one of the large problematic things with it and we can't live like that nobody actually ever lives by not trusting everything i think but but the logical progression of holding such a view leads to a life like foucault's Ment and mental, mental illness mental illness that he maybe couldn't have helped because it's a kind of a but but still his way that of, of acting out kind of was informed to a certain extent. Nietzsche too yeah. ended his life in an insane asylum, right? I think so. I think it's right. He was going he was going mad. So there's some there's clearly some consistency between their philosophical worldview and the their life. The mental issues that they ended yeah. up having. Not I, to say that that's completely the only cause. Right. right. And because of that too, I think uh, succinctly put, um it also kind of disregards doubts, neglects objective truth. Yeah, because so for them, truth, truth, truth would have been uh, created, not something to be discovered, right? So yeah. I think it's another thing here. Um, and going back to like this, this archival, this uh, archaeology of knowledge, it's like truth at best has been a dominant expression. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like it's a mm -hmm. forceful thing on, on certain people. I mean, I don't know. Is there something else you talked about? I think you had mentioned uh, that like the, the Marxist influence. In yeah, his, I uh, did. You know? So, I mean, it's, one so Jordan Peterson really doesn't like Foucault. He thinks he's brilliant, and he thinks there's things to be gained from, especially that book, The Order of Things. Yeah, but he's kind of he says one of the marks of Foucault's kind of despicableness is the fact that after World War One, World War Two, after the horrors of Marxism and Maoist China and Stalinist Russia, yeah. Foucault was really the only public intellectual left. He's like still embracing Marxist ideals. So like mm. even all those terrible consequences didn't dissuade him from being like, oh yeah, Marxism is. So like I, he, so he kind of, he takes Marxist ideals, which are diabolical and re, re kind of encapsulate, encapsulates them in this dialogue Sorry, between oppressor and oppressed. Um, so that's, that's problematic with him. And then I was just going to say something else. What were we talking about before that? Um, uh, we were talking about uh, truth as something that's created and discovered, hermeneutic of suspicion, yeah, doubting um, of objective truth. Man, it was really profound. I'm sure it was, Joey. I'm but sure it was. It'll come it's to gone. You. It's gone. It'll come to you. Maybe in the next episode. I'll um, I think another thing, too, to talk about negatively put, I guess you already kind of talked about it here, is that like hierarchies of values, categories, political systems, economic systems, social systems, religious systems, all these things are really nothing. Yeah. They're, they don't reflect anything true no. in the world. Um, 
Whereas obviously we would say that's not the case. Uh, that's not the case. We don't live by that. We, they might be flawed. Yeah. They, they, certainly they're wounded. They're flawed. They're imperfect. We love imperfectly as human beings. Um, but also there's a level to which we all operate by some level of value, which we take seriously. Yeah. It. If you didn't like yeah. hierarchy of val- like hierarchy just means sacred order mm. and you can't operate in the world without valuing some things above other things. Right. If you, if you tried to operate that like that, you'd never even get out of bed because you get, you, you don't even have motivation to do anything without pursuing some good, yeah. which you perceive to be better than what you have now or like right. something worth desiring. And for yeah. Foucault, like there is no, real hierarchy of value out there in the world worth pursuing. It's all just arbitrary categorization that we, mm. that is a result of these powers. Right. Shortings. And the values are, um, manifested by the prominent figures of the time to the exclusion of those in the peripheries. Right. So values are built off by the, if you will, the elite, mm-hmm. whereas the, the oppressed are kind of pushed to a side and don't fit within the category of what we would call values. Yeah. Um, and to him, that's kind of, it's negative. I mean, it's that's not a good a way to to live life. That's not a joyful. That's not a hopeful way to live life. Um, not everything's perfect, uh, and there's many systems that are in fact corrupt. And I think and they do marginalize they people. Do. So that's why we need to be constantly yeah. like reforming, check, checking, checking ourselves, evolving, and but not completely overturning no. and not completely right. doubting and dismantling. And I think that's one of the the the, the, the fundamental issues with with um, somebody like Foucault and Marx and Jean Paul Sartre and Nietzsche. It's like you got to overthrow this will to power. You got to overthrow right. the power structure. Which is why you see right you things to see things today like defund the police, like yeah. just overthrow everything, just get rid of every system because it's just all an expression of some power structure. And I need to express myself how I want to express myself. Get rid myself. of marriage and the nuclear family, right? Yeah. Like all these things. It's just, it's, um, it's not good. And so. so ultimately what it causes, it seems to me is kind of this war amongst social groups, like, uh, which you see. And Today, unfortunately, yeah. particularly in the, in the, um, American political, uh, structure is, is a deep, 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 hermeneutic of suspicion mm-hmm. against everybody and anything that doesn't agree exactly by the way that you do. Therefore, I must hate them. And it causes a lot of disunity in families. It causes a lot of disunity in institutions. In our political uh, in our discourse. Political. And so it's like, okay, okay, so none of this must mean anything if everybody's just fighting about everything. We must, then, then maybe Foucault is right. Maybe everything should be, everything is about oppressor and oppressed mm-hmm. and should be kind of in this uh, combated thing. Um, yeah, so guys, we we we're here trying to cover Michel Foucault, a profound thinker, um, you know, of of the nineteenth, twentieth, so I guess twentieth century, twentieth, twenty first century, twentieth um, century, I guess, twentieth century, yeah, that's just twenty, just just twentieth century, and so, um, but 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 in light of his work, we also have to keep in mind his life, his context, what he's trying to do, and what actually happened due to his ideas, and that's really the reason why we wanted to talk about him is because we see the effects of so how some of these ideas are taking place in the world today mm-hmm. through any you know you name any any sort of um, function, and you'll see that you you look at any discourse, if you will, um, taking place in the world, and you quickly see that uh, Foucault's ideas are in some ways uh, the ones that are. Um, guiding the conversation. Yeah. I mean, implicitly. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's, yeah, exactly. That's why we like doing episodes like this, talking about the history of ideas like this, because when we look at the world and see just the craziness around us, it's really, it's really scary. And it's really easy to just say, oh my gosh, everything's falling apart. This is all just utterly unintelligible and I don't understand any of it. Mm -hmm. Well, when you understand a thinker like Foucault, 
then you can look at the world around you and you can be like, Oh, I see, like, I see where some of this is coming from mm. and now I can understand things. And, um, and I, you don't have to be afraid of it. You can, you can kind of, right. you can kind of know, um, to a certain extent. So yeah, hopefully you learned something in this episode. Um, I don't know if I'm going to go recommend reading Michel Foucault. Feel free to, if you want to. I don't think it'll be very fun. It would certainly won't be uh, peaceful or joyful or hopeful. And I think that's the last message I want to leave you on, you yeah. guys on. Um, some of this can be pretty hardcore, all right, pretty dark. Mm-hmm. Um, but always remember, as we do, our Lord Jesus Christ promised us salvation, promised us eternal life, promises us, lives amongst us even to this very second, is guiding um discourse. And he is the true word. He is the true word unfolding himself, not unfolding himself, revealing himself to man once and for all in the incarnation. And still today we get to partake in that love through the Holy Eucharist, through the sacraments, through living a life of purity and holiness. And so guys, that's ultimately the message here. Foucault, interesting figure. Let's pray for Foucault. Let's pray for Michel Foucault. Uh, And let's pray for all of those who have been influenced and let's pray for us too to grow in holiness, to grow in in truth and and be uh, co-creators, right? Co-creators. Co-creators of truth. So that's it. Guys. We're praying for you. Yeah, we are. Pray for us. Thank you for tuning into this It's National Vocations Week. Okay, dude, I'm trying to end the episode, bro. Jeez. Be a priest. Be a religious (laughs) sister. Or be a holy family. Be a holy family. A holy parent. We need holy parents. The holiest parents. But if you're thinking about going to the seminary, think harder and then just do it. (laughs) Just, yeah. (laughs) Boy, that was crazy. All right, guys, as always, God bless.